glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Right, would you stand with me out of uh, honor for God's Word? We'll read verses 1 through 9, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning verse 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Thank you. You may be seated. And as is very common, I want to give you uh, this text of Scripture. And basically, I want to focus on verses 6 through 9, where it begins to dive into an Old Testament prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. A simple message this morning, and it ties in with the Sunday School lesson. We had a lesson this morning in Sunday School on godliness, a word we don't really hear much in our world today, including in churches. That's a sad thing that a word so used in our Bible would be so unheard or unfamiliar in churches. Uh, There should not be counsel of God neglected. Amen? And so godliness... And the key to godliness is the person of Jesus Christ, having him as your Savior, uh, not only his death in your place, but his life given to you daily to live the life he's called us to live. And so our focus is here again this morning and focusing specifically on what gets emphasized around this time of year. As I've said before, we don't know what time of year for sure the Lord Jesus was born. Uh, we we uh, historically recognize his birth around this time of year and celebrate the Christmas holiday Uh, But the fact of the matter is, is he was not born, as you well know, so we can have a holiday. Now, I know it's hard for the American mind to understand that he wasn't born to make us happy. But that's not why he was born. He was born to deal with our utmost problem, and that's sin. Adam thrust us into sin. By the way, that's a historical account. That's not really up for debate. Men who debate it only prove themselves to be foolish. God recorded what took place at the beginning of of time when he told us that he created the heaven and the earth and how we got into the mess we're in. How many of us agree humanity is a mess? All right, if you can't agree with that, you're a mess. And so anyway, humanity is a mess, and the mess is not created by us not finding our better angel or better inner self. The mess is created by sin, God gave man the ability to choose whether to obey or disobey, and man under the influence of Satan, who had the same choice, by the way, and exercised his choice to rebel, 
uh, influenced man to rebel. Adam sinned, thrust humanity into sin. And what Adam undid in his sin, Christ came and repaired in his sacrifice on the cross. And that's what's being dealt with here in Hebrews chapter 2. And he just, he, he kind of puts in, in perspective, he, the, the writer goes past into the prophecy that you'd find in Psalm 8. Then he deals with the present. And then he's going to deal in that context with some things future. And I believe this. I believe that, that this is not, I'm not trying to be profound, but we live between yesterday and tomorrow. You can meditate on that for a few minutes. When it comes to our Christian life, we are grateful for what Christ did when he died for our sins and raised from the dead. We anticipate what he's going to do when he comes again. The recognition of what he's done in time past and what he's promised to do in the future gives us assurance of what he's doing today and how we need to respond to him right now. We are notorious, first of all, as just people, but I think maybe a little more as Americans under the influence of, of a fantasy uh, mentality we are notorious for wanting to escape reality. Would you agree? I'll try that again. We are notorious for wanting to escape reality. What happens is young people live in fantasy and elderly people live in nostalgia. And people in between don't know where they live. (laughs) That is an attempt. You know why entertainment is so prevalent in our culture? Why do you draw are drawn sometimes to whatever draws you if we just be honest uh, and i believe it's why you have to be aware of these things it is to escape reality but as a christian as a child of god as a believer in the lord jesus christ our reality we may not see what we want to see right now but we are assured that one day we will and what he says here is we do not yet see all things put under him though that's been revealed and prophesied yet we do see jesus and I desire, with the Lord's help this morning, to simply just preach the gospel to you this morning about the Lord Jesus Christ and put into perspective why He came, the fact that He is coming, and that ought to tell us today how you and I should respond to Him right now. I'll give you, as I said, these three things out of these verses, specifically verses 6 through 9. Let me back up just a little bit and make some comment on the verses leading up to that. It's interesting to me, there are many today, and let me just, and I want to try to, to hammer away at some things and him off, if we might, some dangers that are in so-called doctrine, doctrinal teachings today. Many today are using the, the wonderful truth that we're living under what's called the dispensation of the grace of God. That's the terminology in the Bible. To say we are no longer living under the dispensation of the law and to say then our... They've read or, or, or perverted the grace of God to say, because God is gracious, there's really no way that you can offend Him. God is so gracious and God is so kind that really ultimately He, he loves you, and He does, by the way, that's a fact. But that love is taken and perverted to say, you really can't offend God. Let me say this, read the book of Hebrews and it'll change your mind. <laughs> What the Bible says here is if under the law, if under this previous dispensation you were held account for disobedience to every commandment, how much more accountable are you now to the gospel? If you were accountable for doing wrong under the law and and being held accountable by God, how much more accountable if you ignore the pardon that's been offered to you for your transgressions when it's offered? It would be like this. How, how much, what does it say about a child that re- repeatedly doesn't care what the parents instruct or tell, 
But then the parent sits the child down and with grace and kindness says, Now look, you have disobeyed. You have made life difficult. You are unkind to your siblings. You've been disobedient to your mother and I, your dad and I. You've done this, this, and this, and you are deserving of this. However, your mom and I are willing to be forgiving toward you. All that's required of you is to acknowledge that what you've done is wrong and seek reconciliation. And we would be more than happy to be reconciled. And the child goes, Now, the disobedience was bad. That was natural. But the balking at the offer of forgiveness, would your mind change toward that child if you saw them do that? There are those that look at the law and say, Ten Commandments, I've broken those. And then someone says, yeah, but you can be forgiven. And they go, I'm not that bad. Doubly wicked. That's really what the Word of God says, Hebrews 2, 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Pay close attention to what God has told us, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of the reward. Meaning, if God held you accountable for disobeying the word given by angels to men, what to write and put down, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles. He's talking about the apostles and gifts of the the Holy Ghost according to his own will. He says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come where we speak. He's going to begin speaking of Christ. He said, If you were accountable for the Old Testament where the word was given by angels and you were accountable to obey what was given, how much more when the gospel has been given by the Lord Jesus Christ If we neglect that, I think we misunderstand in our time the sin of neglect. It's something dealt with throughout the Bible. Neglect is, is, it's a lukewarm term. Neglect is I am not in full agreement. I am not fully attentive, but I'm not in opposition. I'm just not interested. I'm just not interested. Let me me explain it to you this way. We go into town today, let's say, and I go to purchase something. I pull a gospel track out of my pocket, and I go to hand it to one person. They say, oh, thank you. And immediately they begin to read it and be very attentive to what it says. And then I hand it to another person. They say, no, thank you. You can have it. And they throw that thing back. We just got two very clear responses, didn't we? But I hand it to another person. They go, oh. And they throw it over there with the junk mail, and they don't look at it for the next five years. That's neglect. This is what happens when we do not give attention to the gospel, to the word of God, to who Jesus Christ is, we're guilty of neglect. It's simply not doing what we ought to do. I believe sins of omission are far more subtle than sins of commission. James 4.17, therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Let me put it this way. How many people could be somewhere today where they could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached and just didn't even think about it? Now, do you think there is sin in that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. How many could read their Bible and just don't? Could pray and just don't? Here, it's not neglecting prayer or Bible. It's neglecting so great salvation. I mean, just know this. God has gone to great lengths to let the world know that he has done something about our sin problem. People ask something like this every now and then. Why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever heard somebody say something like that? Well, it's kind of a wrong question. 
why do good things happen to bad people? Why has any good ever happened to any of us? It's our verses in the bulletin today. It's of the Lord's mercies we're not consumed because His compassions fail not. And so this morning the charge in the first part of Hebrews 2 is take earnest heed what's about to be said. And then he's going to, as I said, go back into the Old Testament and remind them of some things. So let's catch back up. Verse 4, uh, the Bible says, verse 5 rather, for unto the angels, we're back in Hebrews 2, for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. So he said, I'm speaking of a world to come, not the world we live in, but a world that's coming. So he's gone into the past, and he's going to go into the past, talking about what Jesus preached, the gospel he preached, was confirmed by the apostles. All that's already behind them. The signs and wonders have already been given, confirming the word. And now this writer is writing to say, we know what's taken place. Christ Jesus came into the world, proclaimed salvation through himself. The apostles bore him witness that he is the Son of God. Now there's a world to come, and that world's been put into subjection in, not to the angels, it says in verse 6, but one in a certain place, and it's the psalmist in the 8th Psalm, uh, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Is the incarnation of Christ not the visitation of God? What God did, I love the name Emmanuel for the Lord Jesus Christ because it, it is full of doctrine. Emmanuel means God with us. For those who would deny that Jesus Christ is God, they're going to have to change the name Emmanuel because his name shall be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. God visited us. And so that's what is being referred to here is the incarnation of Christ. Man is made a little lower than the angels. What's he mean? In the order of power and authority. Uh, How many of us know that The angel Gabriel was in the book of Daniel, and then you find him again in the book of Matthew. That makes him a few hundred years old. We're a little lower than that. None of us is going to make 700 or 800. Gabriel's been around. The angels are higher in power, higher in authority, higher in intellect, all those things. So man's a little lower than the angels. We're above the animal world, but we're below the angels as far as greatness and so forth. And so thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Verse 7, thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. He is speaking specifically now of the visit of God to man in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. The revelation that is given. I want to focus our attention on that. When he begins to speak in verse 6, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that thou visit him? Turn to the 8th Psalm with me, if you would. And let's just read it. It's a short psalm, and it's prophetic. And that's why we term this, this, this point the revelation. Before the Lord Jesus came, revelation was given that God would visit man. And that God would put all things under that man. The the Jews referred to him as the Messiah. We know that same term as the Christ. Same meaning as the Messiah. The expected Savior. The expected promise. He was to be a promised prophet. As Moses had said, uh, a prophet like unto himself, but greater. Uh, uh, The promised king. The seed of David and of, of his throne. And of course, a promised priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is prophet and priest and king. The nation of Israel was expecting a Messiah, 
when he came, by and large, they rejected him, and yet he's been offered to us. And so the prophecy of him in Psalm 8 says this, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hast set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. There is, as with so much of Scripture, a dual meaning. There is a practical meaning, and there's a prophetic meaning. The practical meaning, why would God put man in charge of his creation? We look into the skies and see his intelligence, his ability, his power, his might. What are we? May I say this? That is not the general disposition of the average American citizen. Why would God trust us? The average disposition is, why would God have a problem with me? The revelation we're given in the 8th Psalm tells us two things. It tells us about the greatness of God, therefore the greatness of Jesus Christ, and tells us about the neediness of man and the humility of man. We have a a twofold revelation in this as the psalmist pours out his heart. He says, when I look up and I consider who you are by what you've done, the greatness of someone is often seen by what they can accomplish. Would you agree? Whether they can make a great financial accomplishment, some great architectural accomplishment. We say men are great because of great political accomplishments or great ministry accomplishments. Then how great is God? And by the way, we need a reminder of that this morning. Humanism talks about the greatness of man. Humanism is folly on its face. And you say, preacher, why do you preach on humanism so much? Because that wretched philosophy has made its way into Christian mentality. And it must be rejected as blatant error. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. We are not humanists as Christians. God did not... Here's what the humanist says. Man created God out of weakness and now we know better and we're strong. We don't need God anymore. God says God created man and though he doesn't need him, he loves him and desires him. That's a different view, isn't it? The humanist says God exists for me. God exists simply for my purpose, my pleasure, and if that's not the God that is God, then I don't need a God like that. But the Bible says, and the Word of God says, and Jesus Christ says, we were created for His pleasure. And He's not demented like us and get pleasure out of doing evil. God gets pleasure out of doing good. And my point this morning is the revelation we're given in Hebrews that comes out of Psalm 2, as I began to say, has a twofold meaning. It is speaking about mankind in general. What is man that you would put the world, the earth, under our dominion? That's what he did in the garden. You're in charge of these things. But it also has a prophetic meaning, and it speaks of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. What is man that thou, uh, that thou, that, that he would consider us, and that he would take mind of us, and would visit us? And that prophetic meaning is, what is man that God would come down to us and visit us in the person of Jesus Christ? Out of the mouth of babes is reference to prophetically when those little children would praise the Lord Jesus Christ on the triumphal entry. So the revelation is this, God is great, man is not. Why would God be mindful enough of man to entrust him with anything and do anything for him? Now, is that our mentality this morning? Why would God care about me? Why would God be mindful of me? 
I believe when Mary was told in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, uh, especially Luke 1, where she's told that she's going to bear a son and his name would be Emmanuel, you can hear in her tone. And then when she sings her song in Luke chapter 2, that God had visited her and that God had been kind to her to take mind of the lowly and of the humble. Meaning Mary was blown away that God would allow her to be used in His divine purpose. This morning, the gospel has lost a great deal of its effectiveness on the hearts and minds of men, and men ignore it because the gospel demands the glorification of God and the humility of man. That's the revelation, that we are not deserving that God... That's what grace is. When we say, what is man that thou art mindful of him, we are acknowledging the fact that you are mindful of us tells us you are a great God, you are a gracious God. Grace is God being mindful of us when we don't deserve it. I'll be honest with you, the majority of people, if you get to deal with them one-on-one, at least in our broader community, there is a seeming, and I'm not railing on anybody, I'm just being, I'm being honest about what we find. There's a seeming idea of, I'm a good person, why would God be upset with me? That's not the revelation of God's Word. The revelation of God's Word is, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why would man be mindful of God be mindful of us? God is great. Think about this. God created all of the galaxies. For as far as you can see, He created all. Someone say, I just cannot believe that all of life could be all packed up on earth. Here's why. Because they'd have to concede to what we're talking about this morning. In comparison to God, we are minutia. In comparison to God, we are microorganisms. Ah, now we're on the right track. We are. Look at this. Just compare. Do this. Compare my lifespan. Let's say I live an average life. Let's say I make 78 years old. Compare that to the age of the earth. What is my life? Just what James said, even a vapor. Then why would God be mindful of us? Why would God send his son into this world? That's the revelation. The the writer says, as one said, what is man that thou art mindful of him uh, and that thou shouldest visit him? That's a good question this morning. Why would God take the time and effort to be mindful of us? And John 3.16 is the answer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There are those that say, I cannot fathom. I I just, I, I can't, if God is who the Bible says he is, then why would he take mind of us? That's exactly the question. And so the revelation does two things, as I said. It's practical. Why would God entrust the care of the earth to us? But it is prophetic in speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would God visit us and be mindful of us in this way? And the answer, of course, is it's found in the greatness and goodness of God. I believe the revelation is God is... We see God's greatness, God's goodness, and God's grace. We see our sinfulness. We see our weakness. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And so the revelation in this is a revelation of a great and a gracious God. By the way, if I were going to try to get people to repent, you know what I would do? I'd terrify them. Wouldn't you? Someone says, I don't believe on your Savior. I don't believe the gospel. I'm just talking, as, a, as Paul would say, as, let me speak as a man. Well, let us call some fire down from heaven and see if you want to repent. That's what James and John said. But you know what, you know what the Bible says brings us to repentance? Romans 2, I believe it is. The goodness of God. The goodness of God. Let me put it this way. It's, it's exactly what's revealed here. 
Why would God take notice of us? Why would God entrust anything to us? Why would God visit us? Because we're good? I'll repeat, I asked one of my little children recently, so are you saved? Mm -hmm. Are you sure you're saved? Mm -hmm. Are you saved because you're good? Mm -hmm. Are you saved because God is good or because you're good? And they said, because God is good. I'm talking about a little one, young one. And I wasn't coaching, just asking questions. This morning, are you righteous? I asked the question of two people last week. Are you righteous enough to go to heaven? Ooh. I can tell you, if you're just asking me, myself, the answer is flat out no. I am not. Is any liar righteous enough to go to heaven? How about any, any person that has willfully and intentionally misused God's good name in their life? Even one time. No? And why is man, why is God, the revelation is this. In asking the question, what is man that thou art mindful of him? It assumes God is great and good and gracious to take note of us, not only to entrust us to the care of this earth, but to come visit us in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, Hebrews 2. He said, verse 6, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. When it comes to mankind, mankind, so not just the man Christ Jesus, but mankind. Do we see all things put under our subjection at this point? Are we in control? No. There are things that are out of our control. There are things that are not under our... Man wants to think he can. COVID proves we can't control everything. Amen? Uh, I know that the humanists of our day say, well, we're the ones controlling the weather. We're the ones controlling diseases. That's lies. That's some. With all the talk that there's been about trying to make changes for the weather and controlling the diseases, how successful? I, I'm, I'm not a pragmatist, but I'm pragmatic when it comes to these kind of things. How successful have we been? I mean, man has made a good solid shot at trying to, to, to make a pestilence in the world go away that men were very responsible for helping create, I'm sure. How successful have we been? In all our efforts, we can't even unify, let alone conquer. Are you with me? Let me just tell you something this morning. Man is not in control of everything. We see not all things put under him. Uh, your dying day will prove that. My dying day. We're not in control of death. And so the, we've seen the revelation that God has related to man certain responsibilities and certain privileges, and it should make us say, why? What is man that thou art mindful of us? The almighty great God would take note to put the world under our charge and then to visit us in the person of Christ. And there's the prophetic here speaking of putting all things under the Lord Jesus Christ, including the world to come. But then the revelation brings us to a stark reality. That's our next point. He says this in verse 8, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Remember earlier he, he referenced the world to come? That's when everything will be under the rule of Jesus Christ. 
The world to come is when Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning and everything is done His way. By the way, that's the political campaign I'm working toward. When Christ, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a theocracy, um, uh, what's the other word I'm looking for? Monarchy. I want return to monarchy. They do you, who should be king? Jesus Christ, he's the rightful king. By the way, you can live in a monarchy today if you want to. He can rule every facet of your life if you'll just let him. And that's what we're reminded of here. Not only of the coming of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, but it's a reminder about his authority. But the reality we're reminded of is in verse 8, it says, he put all things under man, but we see not yet all things put under him. You look around you and you see the sinful world we live in and you realize no man has not got it all under control. That ought to not only humble us to say, why would God be mindful of us? But obviously we are not all we need to be and don't have all we need. All things are under man, but we see not yet all things put under him. Our hope is not in the current status. Let me put it this way. Our hope is not in making the world a little better place. Our hope is in a kingdom to come. Um, Too many truly born-again people have lost sight of eternity. We are not living for a better life here. We are living for the day when we'll have... Look, we have, if you're born again this morning... You have as your personal possession eternal life. It's yours. That means when you step out of this world, you're not dying. Your body is, but you literally will live forever. That's a promise of God. That's what we're looking for. We look for a city whose builder and maker is God. And so he gives us the revelation that God has visited man and God has entrusted responsibility to man and God has sent his son into this world to save us by visiting us But then he says, we see not all things put under him yet under mankind. There's still uh, things being ruled. Who's the God of this world? (laughs) Well, Satan's the God of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air, the Bible says. So while we are given authority in this world, we still see Satan running the show in so many ways. He he is in, uh, seated in, uh, Ephesians 6 talks about principalities and powers in high places. Is that still in our world? So we see the revelation of a day when, when God will have a man and all things under that man, but we see it not yet. We do not look and see, ah, yes. Some believe, oh, the kingdom of God is established on earth now. We're living right now under the rule of Jesus Christ actively. Uh, we would refer to these people as dominionist, meaning Christians just need to rise up and take the kingdom for Jesus' sake. <laughs> I'm kind of wording it that way. Well, that's their wording. I'm going to tell you something. If Jesus Christ is proactively ruling all that's going on here right now, something's broken. We see not all things under him yet. Would you agree? But what's he say next? So that's, we've seen the revelation, the reality, all things not yet under his feet. But then the recognition is this in verse 9. But, so we do not see all things under man yet, but we see who? Jesus. But we do see Jesus. So the hope is that the revelation of the need of man and the supply of God and the current condition we live in, the answer in this sin-cursed world that we live in is the Lord Jesus Christ. We see Jesus, number one, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. You know what he's doing? He's tying verse 9 to the revelation, the prophecy that he's just given out of Psalm 8. What is man thou hast, that thou art mindful of him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Now that talks about the divine order. 
but it also talks about God making Jesus a little lower than the angels. Now, it's made him a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. How many of you would like this? Say, um, what is the purpose of your life? Why has God put you on this earth? To suffer. And that's it. There, there are people, I pre- if they could hear me preaching this morning, they say, I believe it. The people got a lot worse than we do. And they think they were put on earth simply to suffer. But do you realize Jesus' entire purpose in coming to this earth was to suffer? And he came anyway. Now, I can just tell you flat out, if someone says, hey, are you interested in moving to such and such country to be a blessing to those people? Oh, yes. Well, from the day you step on the dirt of that, the soil of that place, to the day you leave, it will be one day of suffering after another until finally you suffer to death. Interested in going? Nope. Pastor. I'm just telling you, fleshly speaking, if you said your whole purpose in life is to suffer, how many know that is really what he, from the day he was born, he was sought to be killed? Herod tried to kill him in Bethlehem. The Pharisees sought constantly to kill him. And from the time his earthly ministry began, he disappears between the age of 2 and 12, as far as Scripture is concerned, from 12 to 30. We really don't see those formative years recorded in Scripture. But the moment he comes into the public eye, the moment he's known publicly, somebody's trying to kill him. Until they finally succeeded. What a life! He would not fit in the American dream. He doesn't, actually. Don't miss what I just said. He doesn't. It's why he gets rejected. Someone said, I'm not interested in someone like that. I'm interested in someone who will give me a good life now. You can have a good life now and die and go to hell. Luke 16, a man did. He fared sumptuously every day. The world around him would have said, what a successful man. He has a nice home. Keeps vagrants on the outside of his property. Like that man that the dog lick his horse. Don't know his name. Isn't it interesting? How many of you think in Luke 16, forgive me, I take a rabbit trail. Luke 16 is the record of the rich man who died and went to hell. And it's not a parable. The Bible never says it is. He died and in hell lifted up his eyes being in torments. We're never given the rich man's name in Luke 16, but we are given Lazarus' name. How many of you think in life everybody knew Lazarus' name but didn't know the rich man's name? You know it was just the other way around. But in heaven we have Lazarus' name. It's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I'm sure. And in hell, the rich man doesn't have a name. You say, what's your point this morning? My point is this. The Lord Jesus came for the suffering of death. He was made a little lower than the angels, meaning God didn't take on the form of an angel. He took on the form of a servant. He became a man. Why? That he might suffer death in our place, crowned with glory and honor. So again, what the writer is doing is showing us that the eighth psalm practically means God in order put man in charge of earth, but prophetically it's speaking of Jesus Christ, that God would himself become man and visit man and would do so for the suffering of death so that all things can be brought under man. Crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. That last phrase is what gets my attention. The Bible says Jesus would come for the suffering of death to taste death for who? Every man. I'm glad for the plainness and the clarity of the Bible. When I read, now you can just help me, I'm a little bit of a simpleton. When I read Hebrews 2, 9, and it says he tasted death for every man, my mind and my conscience immediately says he died for me. God 
had to become a man so that mankind could once again have victory. Why do we not see all things under him now? Because of sin. And Jesus came, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every grievance known to man today is found answered in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't live today to give us a life of conquest per se over all our you know, opposition today. God never promises a life of ease if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he does promise an eternity of such. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And Jesus came for this sole purpose. This is what Christmas is all about. He came that he might suffer the suffering of death. We'll give you a couple more scriptures because what is included here is what is known as the substitutional death of Jesus Christ. And don't miss it. You say, oh, I've already believed in that. I'm saved. Wonderful. It's the substitutional death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that will motivate and be the fuel for your Christian life every day. Isaiah chapter 53, we know the text. Some of my favorite in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 53. We must understand Jesus did not just die for all men. He did. I mean, understand there's a difference in saying he died for all men, he died for every man. They're the same, but both need to be stated. Some would say, well, he died for all men. My question is, did he die for every man? Does that include every man in every period of time in this world? Does that mean Jesus' death was specifically and uniquely for me? I mean, you believe that the Apostle Paul was present as Saul at the cross. We have no evidence of that. He would have been a little bitty child. Yet he said that Christ died for him, died for him. The death of Jesus Christ, his coming into the world, has universal implication, but it has extremely personal application. Amen? Universal implication, personal application. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now notice this Isaiah writing, he uses the the personal plural pronoun our, including himself. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us Let me just preach just a little more on this truth. When we add anything to the gospel, and the gospel is this, Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. This is found in 1 Corinthians 15. He was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. Meaning the gospel is not, it it is not good news to you today. If you come in here, I say, now if you will pray five times a day, attend church three times a week, read your Bible three once a year, that proves you're a good person, you'll get to go to heaven. You're in trouble if you're illiterate. You're in trouble if you break your leg. You're in trouble if you get snowed in. Now, all those things I just mentioned, they're all right. Going to church is a good thing, but it's not going to make you righteous. Reading your Bible is a good thing, but it's not going to make you righteous, and you know this. But the fact of the matter is, if you come here today and I say, if you live a life of dedication, let me ask something. If I say the only way for you to go to heaven is live 100% obedient life to Jesus Christ, how many of you are sure you're going? 
Even people who believe that's how to go to heaven aren't sure they're going. Because they know they're not living that way. But if I said to you, the good news is not what you do for him, but what he's already done for you. Now that's good news. The good news is he died and was already punished for your sins. So you can be forgiven. The good news is he lives and will give you that forgiveness if you put your trust in him. Isn't that good news? It's what he does for you and what you do for him. Salvation is not your performance for God, and then if you're a good boy, he might let you in. Friend, that's false, that's false teaching. The good news is we deserve the wrath of God, but he already stood in our place and took it. For who? Huh? For who? He tasted death for who? Every man. Now, I'm going to get myself in trouble, but if God wanted to say for every man that's part of the elect, he would have. He didn't say that. Jesus tasted death for every man. You find a man out there today and he says, I'm a wicked man. There's no way I'm on my way to heaven. Well, at least you're an honest man. But what do I do? It's been done for you. Your sins have been paid for. For me? How do I know for me? You can take them right to Hebrews 2, 9 and say, Jesus already tasted death for you. I love Romans 6, 23 compared to Hebrews 2, 9. For the wages of sin is death. Meaning, by the way, how many of us have sinned? And how many of you, your paycheck is death? The wages, what you and I have earned by disobeying God is death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love in the comparison. Okay, I deserve death. Death has already been handed out. He tasted death for every man. So Isaiah 53, now Galatians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 5.21, as you're on your way to Galatians, says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Same truth again. He tasted death for every man. He became our sin, took the judgment for us that we might be made righteousness. Verse 20 of Galatians 2, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for the world, me. I believe on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus realized his offenses were personal between he and Jesus Christ. That's what happened when you got saved. And if you're not saved, it needs to happen. That what he suffered on the cross was because of your sins. Jesus died and had to suffer what he did because of things I, Nevin, Joshua, and Neil have done. He had to suffer and do so in my place. This is why I believe Hebrews 2. We have this prophecy. What is man that thou art mindful of him? It reveals a great and gracious and good God and a man who has a responsibility. But yet we see man not fully fulfilling that responsibility. All things are not under him yet. Ah, then let's give the meaning of that revelation. That's not just talking about man's responsibility and God's goodness and why would man be mindful, God be mindful? It is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Jesus became a man for the suffering of death that he might taste death for every man. And that is the crown of glory and honor for him. His cross is what crowns him as King of kings and Lord of lords. He fulfilled what he came here to do. I can promise you with assurance if your salvation was up to me and I had to do what Jesus did to save you from sin, you'd be lost on multiple accounts. You'd be lost because I can't live a life without sinning, nor can you. 
You'd be lost if I'd lived a sinless life. I wouldn't lay it down for you. See, you're mean. I would now, I think, but before salvation, no. I mean, honestly, if you knew the will of God was for you to go through what Jesus went through the night of his crucifixion, and you had the possibility of turning away from it, what would you do? If I knew I have to be crucified and there's nothing I can do to stop it, I guess at some point I would say, I'll surrender. I can't. There's nothing I can do. But I'd fight it to the last. But our Lord said, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The cross of Christ, the divine plan of God, but as a human, as Jesus Christ, both God and man, Humbly and willingly accept it. He said, no one taketh my life from me, I lay it down. And the point is this, this morning, that we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death. It deals with his person, who he is. He was God in the flesh. It deals with his purpose. He came for the sole purpose to die for our sins, crowned with glory and honor. That's his resurrection. That's his, that, is, that is his sinless perfection. And then we see that he did so that he might taste death for every man. Now, for the child of God here this morning, a verse we've probably been reading almost every week, or verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is, this is where the truth of what he did for us, we need, the preaching needs to remind us of what he did for us personally. Let me ask you today, I think of Hezekiah. I think of the story of Hezekiah in the Old Testament. Hezekiah was going to die. God sent the prophet Isaiah to tell him, you're dying, and you're going to die. And the Bible says he turned his face toward the wall and wept and pleaded with God for his life. And what did God do? Gave him 15 more years of life. He had a boil and they put figs on the boil and healed his boil. 15 more years of life. The Bible says in those 15 years he rendered not according to the benefit. Meaning God gave him life out of just out of grace. God said your days are done. He was a young man at that time in his 40s if I'm not mistaken. Maybe even his 30s. He's going to die, and God says, I'll give you life. But he never lived with full appreciation of what God had given him. And this morning, for so many of you here who know exactly everything I'm talking about, you could articulate the substitutionary death of Christ. My question is this, are we rendering according to the benefit? Do we really understand what Jesus did for me personally, that today, had he not come, and had he not been born, and had he not lived and died, I literally, truly could look forward to nothing but the flames of hell. But because he did, I don't have to fear that for a moment because he did it for me. Friend, I'm going to tell you something. When that gets a hold of your heart, no one has to tell you to live for Christ. His grace alone will tell you whatever he wants. If it's at the least bit displeasing him, not interested, he died for me. If it weren't for him, I would be under the wrath of God. But I'm not, and I know it, and I know I deserve to be. See, here's where I'm at this morning before you. I know that if God had already given me what I deserve based on how I've treated him, I'd be burning in those flames today. I, I don't make that up. That's not preacher rhetoric. I'm full convinced in my heart. I deserve hell. But I'm not going there. And you know why? Because he tasted death for me. I'm excited about it. Are you? Are we rendering according I've gotten life today. I don't deserve life today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Bible says in verse 12, 
For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. Here it is. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, that's every man, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. Meaning from the moment you get life from him, you shouldn't live unto yourself, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Is that not the constraint of the understanding he died for me? It's exactly what Paul meant when he said, uh, I'm crucified with Christ. Meaning, the life I was going to live has died because of what he did for me. I was going to live for Paul. I was going to live for Paul's reputation. I was going to live for Paul's happiness. I was going to live for Paul's name. I was going to, Saul at that time. I was going to live for my way. But when I realized what Christ did for me, now I'll just live the life he gives me. Eh? That's called what many would call the crucified life. Meaning, I know he's given me life. And I know I didn't deserve it. What is man? What is man that God that, that God would be mindful of him to send us Christ in the person of Jesus Christ in the form of a servant that he should taste death for every one of us. And today, whether you've not personally come to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, all I can say to you is he deserves to be trusted. I would charge you, if you've never yet believed the message preached to you this morning, that it is a truth that Jesus Christ did come, that he did die, that he is living, and that salvation is only by faith in him. Don't neglect that. Don't neglect what you've heard from the Bible. Don't neglect what you've heard preached. I dare say, if you're here this morning, this is not the first time. I would most likely think not. For every Christian here this morning, do we not need to be reminded he died for every man? He And you think about the death he tasted. And I love to think about that. I've had people literally, and some of you have to asking them, do you believe what Jesus went through on the cross you deserved? Oh, no. I've had a woman tell me that one day. As she blasphemed God's name, no, I'm not that bad. Mm. We do deserve it. But he took it for us. Mm-hmm.